John chapter 11. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at His feet and said, Lord, if You had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within Him, and He was deeply troubled. Where have You put Him? He asked them. And they told Him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed to uh, junior church, and while they are, I want to welcome you to Community Christian Church at the 9 o'clock service. Thank you for being here. We are excited that you are. Um, We are in a series called Signs, and what we're doing is we're journeying through the Gospel of John, taking a look at all of the different signs that John gives us that tell us who Jesus is and what He came to do. And uh, this is the last opportunity because we'll, we'll finish this series next week at the ballpark. And so I wanted to go back to some of those bad signs that I didn't have time for a couple weeks ago. And because sometimes signs are meant to point beyond themselves. And sometimes they just do a horrible job of that, okay? And here are some examples. Left lane must left lane. Okay. How about the next one? Somebody's directionally challenged. All right. I think that's supposed to be ice that they're selling, but it sure looks like a 10-pound bag of mice for a dollar. It's a good deal. I mean, please, when using the stairs, stay to the right when going up and stay to the left when going down. This will keep people from running into each other. I think you need to beta test that one. That's what I think. Okay, here we go. If you see somebody drowning, LOL! That's an unfortunate uh, diagram. Please, no smoking alcohol on the beach. I think I can figure, I, I can do that. I can handle that. That's, that's, that's one I can keep. Notice this is a work-free drug place. And let's keep it that way. Yes. Some signs just do a horrible job of saying what they need to say, right? John's signs are exactly the opposite. They tell us exactly what he wants us to know about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And today we're in John chapter 11, and it's kind of a famous sign. If you've read through the text before, you kind of know what is happening in John chapter 11 with a dear friend of Jesus' named Lazarus. And so let's talk about today a dead man's friend, a dead man's funeral, and a dead man's freedom. All right? Here's how the text starts the dead man's friend. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha, that's where they lived. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, the one you love is ill. Um, Jesus had a special tie, it seems, with this particular family. There were two sisters, a brother. Maybe he was a younger brother. We really don't know. And Jesus has this unique, special affection 
for them. The other Gospels say that Jesus loved being in their home, that it's the kind of place that where he could slip off his sandals and relax and just be himself. And, and the hospitality of this little home, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, was even famous with the disciples. But now, this house is in disarray. Um, the two sisters are worried because their brother is gravely ill. It appears that he can die at any time, and so they're at their wit's end. They send for Jesus. They say, the Lord, the one you love is sick. You're a really good friend, and it's not really an invitation or a request. It's just this appeal to the relationship. You're so close with Lazarus. We love you so much. We have this special relationship. We just assume that you're going to come and do something as soon as you learn of this situation. Now, the word that they use for love is the word friendship. The one you love, Lord, is ill. And it was inconceivable to them that they would do anything, that Jesus would do anything but come to them. Here's what verse 5 says. John writes of Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and the word he uses is a different kind of love. As a matter of fact, there are three different kinds of love that we come across in the New Testament, and this kind of thing surfaces over and over again in sermons. Maybe you've heard it before, but there are three words for love. Eros is the base level of love. It, it, it is all concerned with what can I get out of this situation. Phileo, which is the word that is used here, for, is a kind of a brotherly love. It's a we kind of love, and it just says, what can we get out of this? It's, it's being in a family. It's being on a team. That's phileo kind of love. But then there's a deepest kind of love, and it's, the, it's agape. Agape kind of love is what can you get out of this? Not, not what, what can I get out of it, not what can we get out of it, but what can you get out of this? And that's the word that Jesus uses here when he says, when John says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He agape them. And so Lazarus doesn't just have a friend, but he has someone with the deepest kind of sacrificial love for him, an unconditional love. And so somebody who looked at Lazarus and, said, what, and says, what can you get out of this? What's the greatest thing for you Right now, we all need friends like that. And now, this friend that he loves in that way is gravely ill, he's terminal, and oh, by the way, Jesus is the guy who has healed lame men, he's healed blind men from birth, he's healed somebody that was also terminal on their deathbed just the way his friend that he loves so deeply is on his deathbed and so I can't wait to see what Jesus is going to do with his sacrificial love for his friends. What will it be? Verse 5 says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he loved them so much that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two days longer right? That, that's the party that's raging and all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt and everybody just looks at each other like, what's going on? Without warning. I mean, here's Jesus. He loves his friend. His friend is terminal. He has the ultimate power to help. And what does he do? Nothing. 
He stays right where he was. He doesn't move a finger. By the time he does move, it's too late. Lazarus has died. He's in his grave. John tells us that Lazarus has been in his grave for four days already by the time Jesus arrives. And when he does, there's really no remorse at all. There's really no sorrow that Jesus expresses because something bigger is going on. When he arrives, he meets each sister individually. And they both say the same thing to him. Here's verse 20. Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She goes out to meet him, and she says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 32, Mary says exactly the same thing to Jesus. She falls at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like they're sisters and they talk to each other, right? They clearly have had this conversation that we all have when something goes terribly wrong in our lives. We have this conversation. It's called the if only conversation. And that's what they're doing. If only you had been here, I know things would have been different. Maybe you could have cured him. Maybe you could have prevented his death. They would have been different. And we play that game as well, the if only game. If only I had gone home the normal way, that accident wouldn't have happened, right? If only I had listened to that advice, I wouldn't be in this mess. If only I had spoken up, things could have turned out differently. If only I had stayed home that day, my life would not have turned like it did. If only. It's hard not to play the what might have been video in our mind, and it's the game that Mary and Martha play with Jesus. And here's what he does with that. They say, I know if you had been, if only you had been here, and Jesus says this, your brother will rise again. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus does not play the if-only game. Instead, he changes it. He points Mary and Martha to their future. He says, your brother will rise again. He also points them to the present. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the message to them is the resurrection isn't some future reality. It's a present certainty. It's not just a future fact, but it is a person, and that person is right here, right now, in front of you. And what it really is, is a challenge to change your if only for if Jesus. Now let's try that on for size. If Jesus is the Messiah who was sent by God, if Jesus is God in the flesh come to the earth to save human sinners, if Jesus is God's own Son in whom the living God is present and active, If Jesus is life itself, the resurrection in person, come to give us life, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, then the if-onlys get swallowed up and some inevitable truth of God's real future can and will burst onto our present situation. Whatever mess you have, whatever grief you have in your life, if Jesus means that there will be good news and new hope and new possibilities out of that. And so maybe, maybe you came in today with an if, if only. 
Oh, if, on, if only that had happened this last week. If only, maybe that's in your heart today. Here's what I need you to do. Would you run to Jesus, just like Mary and Martha did? Would you tell him your problem? Would you ask him, why did you not come sooner? Why did you hang out for two days? Why did you allow this terrible thing to happen? And then be prepared for what he's going to tell you. I don't know what it's going to be, but I know the shape it's going to take. It's going to be something like this. Do you believe this? That's what he tells to Martha. He says, I'm the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That I am the resurrection, the life, the God's Messiah, the one who is coming to your world full of pain and sorrow and death with a sacrificial agape kind of love that will do anything to give you life. If you believe that, then the if-only questions can be reassigned and they become instead if-Jesus statements of faith. And so the real challenge is to Mary, to Martha, do you trust me? That's what he's saying. Now, all the signs in John are in response to some desperate need. We've, we've talked about water into wine. That was a wedding was failing because they had ran out of wine, right? Uh, the sick son was on his deathbed. That was a desperate need. The lame man at the pool, the, the people that are out in the desert and they don't have anything to eat, the bread, uh, all of the water, uh, the disciples struggling on the sea and he walks on the water. Uh, the blind man um, who has been blind for work, from birth. All of those are desperate needs. And here in John 11 is our most desperate need. It's the inevitability of death that is on the scene here. And the sign is the climax of all of the signs that John uses in his book. And the point of the sign is given by Jesus himself. We've been covering that every week. Like, what's the point of the sign? What does it say? And Jesus, in verse 4, says it's for the glory of God. In verse 14, it says, so that you may believe. In verse 42, Jesus says, so that you may believe that, you, that God sent me, right? John's inclusion of this sign in John chapter 11 is that Jesus is God's son and that he has been sent to bring us life and there is no better place to prove that Jesus is life than a place that is laced with death. And so let's talk a little bit about a dead man's funeral. Um, just like the wedding in chapter 2, it helps to have a little background of what happened at a funeral in Jesus' day. Uh, burials in Jesus' day in the first century took place on the very same day as the person died. They didn't waste any time. They buried them right away. And then after the burial, all the mourners would go back to the house of the deceased and the furniture would be cleared away. They would sit on the floor or some people would bring really small stools and they would eat. They would eat a traditional funeral meal that consisted of lentils and boiled eggs and round loaves of bread. And all of those, if you've been paying attention, all of those are round, right? And they were symbolic by their shape. They reminded the mourners that life was always rolling into eternity. The mourners would stick around for days. They would commit themselves to not washing, 
Uh, they would not wear sandals. They would go barefoot during their time of mourning, so they would not wash. They would be disheveled and barefooted, and that would last for at least three days because they believed that the height of mourning needed to take place on the third day, and it's because of something weird that was going around in, in Jewish thought. Uh, one guy said this. He said, uh, until three days after death, the soul keeps on returning to the grave, thinking that it will go back into the body. But when it sees that the facial features have become disfigured, it departs and abandons it. And that happens on the third day. That, that has a whole uh, Princess Bride Miracle Max kind of vibe to it, right? Doesn't it? And John tells us, he's quick to tell us, that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So Lazarus isn't just mostly dead, but all dead, right? Big difference. Uh, mostly dead, you got a chance, right? With, with all dead, there's only one thing to do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. That's, that's all there is. Lazarus is all dead. His spirit is gone. His flesh has begun to visibly decay, and not even Miracle Max has a pill for that. And that's what Jesus walks in on. All the mourning affects him greatly. John is very careful to tell us about the emotions of Jesus. In verse 33, he was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled. Deeply moved is this word that is used to describe animals when they bellow. It's when they snort in anger. It's like when a bull would right? that kind of thing. He was deeply moved. He was snorting. He was greatly troubled. It means he was shaken up. He was stirred. He was agitated. And so Jesus is filled with grief and quaking with rage. And we can understand that anger, right? You, you've been in front of that coffin. You've been at that funeral service. Anger is a right response to death and to the pain that it causes. Jesus says, where have you lain him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And John says, Jesus wept. By the way, if you're ever on a trivia show, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, and nobody should go outside today without having memorized at least one verse of the Bible, and it's John 11, 35. Everybody say it. Oh, you did it without even looking. Very, very, very good, very good. One of the most remarkable events in the gospel is this, that Jesus wept. He, he sees Mary and all of her friends in tears, and if we were making the story up, we wouldn't write it this way, right? We would write about Jesus sweeping in to tell everybody, are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying, right? And he would fix it. That's how we would write it. But we know it really happened because Jesus didn't come in with a cake. He came in with Kleenex. John is very careful to point out the words that Jesus' weeping is different. It's not wailing. It's not hopeless. But it's hopeful. There's hopeless grief and there's hopeful grief. And he's moved He's agitated, he's emotional because of the pain and sadness these people are going through, and what he's doing is he's weeping with those who weep 
He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief and our pain, and he's sharing it to the point of tears, and he's so angry at death and saddened by the grief that it causes that he weeps. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, instructs us to do the same, to weep like Jesus. Not as people who don't have hope, but people who do have hope. We weep, acknowledging our pain and grief and saying, yes, it's there and it's painful, but we also recognize Jesus' power over death and that what we're facing here as we stare into a coffin or a tomb is only momentary. And so the onlookers see this emo Jesus and they say, see how he loved him. And then they also say, say this, could this guy who healed the blind man could not have kept this man from dying? And it's not really a state of unbelief as it is puzzlement. It's not a statement of disbelief. It's a statement of uh, what's going on, confusion. If Jesus healed the man born blind, which nobody has ever done, couldn't he keep his friend from dying? Why in the world is there a funeral today? And that's the challenge to Jesus. And it's not just a challenge from people, but it's from death itself. Death is staring Jesus in the face. He's taunting Jesus. He's mocking Jesus as a life giver and as as life itself. And so, verse 38, John writes this. Jesus, deeply moved again, snorting again, bellowing again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. I love what John Calvin writes. He says, Christ does not come to the sepulcher. Yeah, he's writing in the 15th century. He does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for a contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again, for the violent violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome stands before his eyes. He is here for one purpose, and one purpose only, and that is to bring freedom to his friends. And so let's end with the dead man's freedom today. It's one of the most dramatic moments in the whole story of Jesus. He's in front of a large crowd. He's outside of his friend's tomb. It's a cave with a large stone across its mouth. And inside are corpses, probably multiple corpses, not just Lazarus' corpse, but other dead people too. And let's give you the end of the story. You've probably read it. You know it anyway. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus comes stumbling out. He is dead no longer. It is this heart-stopping moment of absolute horror as they encounter what a zombie must be like for the very first time. And also overwhelming joy. Put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha. And if you don't feel this power just a little, then you're not reading it right. The stone is moved and everybody is looking in with horror and disgust into this cold spiderweb filled crypt, right? And before they know it, they see this body slide off of one of the slabs inside, stand up and stumble mummy-like into the sun and they are stunned. They don't know what to do. Jesus finally says, you can probably imagine with a grin, um, Somebody want to untie the man? Go set him free. And so they go and they feverishly unwrap him. They untie the rope that was binding the grave's clothes to set him free. And joy sets in. 
as they realize what has happened. They hug, they dance in their bare feet because Jesus just turned a funeral into a party. And I love the old commentary on this text that continues to kind of overwhelm us with what happened. It goes this way, that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, then all the dead would have walked out of their tomb. And that's the climax of the story. But in order to get there, John gives us two puzzle pieces that we have to put together so the whole story can be understood. And let's go back to the tomb and the large crowd, and Jesus is front, in front of the large crowd, verse 39, and he says this, take away the stone. And immediately Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, he's been in there for four days, four days. By this time there will be an, what's the word? Odor, right. Martha interjects. She's always fussing and anxious. She wants things just to be right. And they're going to open the tomb. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that by, the to- by this time. The smell will be unbearable. He's been dead for four days. Like, you got to love the King James Version. It goes this way. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. That's, that's middle school camp right there, right? Uh, after four days, that's what everybody says. He stinketh. That's the first puzzle piece. It's what Martha says. And it seems like this innocent little detail that John just throws in there to liven up the story, but it's not. It's there quite on purpose. Here's the second puzzle piece. It's what Jesus does. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. What's he doing? He's looking away from himself towards God. What's that sound like he's doing? He's praying. He's praying. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays. He thanks God. He doesn't ask for power to heal Lazarus. He thanks God. And those are the pieces. Martha says, he st- Martha says he stinks. Jesus says thanks. Those are the keys to the whole story. Really? <laughs> yes. Here's what John wants us to piece together from Martha's comment. She's worried that there will be a smell. And they roll the stone away. And after they do, does John ever comment again on the smell? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, no, he doesn't. No. What does that tell us? It tells us that when they rolled the stone away, there wasn't any smell like they were expecting. And from that moment on, Jesus knew that Lazarus was not dead, that he was dead no longer, that he was alive, that there was no decay, there was no smell, and now all that is required is a word of command. Lazarus, come out. And that's what he did. And Jesus also knew this at that moment, that the stone was rolled away and that there was no smell. He knew that his prayer had been heard. That's why he thanked God instead of asking for power, because he had asked for power long before he had ever gotten to the tomb. Do you remember those two days that Jesus stays where he is? 
that it looks like Jesus isn't doing anything, that his friend is dying and he just stays. He doesn't respond. He's like lounging in a hammock far away, unconcerned. That's what it looks like. But the reality is he was doing something. He was responding. Jesus was praying, asking God, show you your glory through this. Do a miracle in my friend's life. Let people see that you are life, that I am your son. Come to give it. Even though my beloved friend will die, preserve his body from decay. May his flesh be kept from corruption, ready to summon back to life at the right time. That's what he prayed. And when the stone was rolled away and there was no smell, he knew his prayer had been answered. The dead man would get his freedom and the reversal of death. A dead man's friend, a dead man's funeral, a dead man's freedom. There are some of you in the room who have always figured the movie out, right? You figure the, the movie out in the first five minutes, and so maybe you know where you're going. For the rest of us, like me, I did not know that everybody was dead when the kid said, I see dead people. I just go with the story. So can I give you the end of the story here? The dead man in our story isn't Lazarus. It's Jesus. The dead man's friend is God himself that he prays to, here glorified. The dead man's funeral is the cross, Jesus dying for us. The dead man's freedom is the resurrection as Jesus himself walks out of his own tomb. And just like we talked about at the very first of the signs, the wedding, Jesus can hardly be at a wedding and not think of his own wedding. And so it's the same at a funeral. Jesus, there's little doubt that at the funeral of his dear friend, Jesus is also thinking of his own funeral. And so when he's praying about the fate of Lazarus during those two days that he stayed behind, praying that his friend will be raised to life, we cannot but suppose that Jesus was at the very same time aware of his own funeral, aware that he was walking towards his own death, and he was praying for himself in the same way, but even more so, because Lazarus was just brought back from death. It means he would die again. Jesus is going to need to go through death and come out on the other side to a whole new kind of life. He was praying for resurrection even as he was the resurrection. And that connection between Lazarus' death and Jesus' death isn't something that I just invented. If you, if you cheat a little and you read on ahead, you come to John eleven fifty three, and you know that the, the, the the religious leaders got a little irritated at what happened. They wanted to kill Lazarus as soon as he was risen from the, from the grave. And they also wanted to kill Jesus. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This miracle was too visible for Jesus. It sealed his fate. His enemies said he has to die, and Jesus knew that that would be the case. He knew what he was doing. He knew that to bring Lazarus out of the grave that he would have to put himself into one, and by extension, right, the only way that Jesus can stop your funeral and my funeral is to cause his own, to go to the cross, unless the cross happens, 
we cannot be saved from death. And he knew all that. He prayed all that. He turns his own if-onlys into if-Jesus. As we close really quickly, can I just give you a few applications that might help? Let's try this if-Jesus on for size, because here's the truth from the text, that Jesus went into the tomb so that you can walk out of one. If that's true, then it means this. Number one, don't be mad at your suffering. Please grieve, please mourn, but be mad at the right thing. Jesus isn't mad at himself in this text, so don't shake your fist at God. Be mad at the real enemy, which is death. We don't sometimes know why we suffer, but the thing we do know is what the reason for our suffering is not, and it's not because God doesn't love us. He does. So don't blame God for your suffering. Here's number two. If Jesus went into a tomb so so that you could walk out of one, number two, know that love will always entail suffering. You can't get away from it. Real love always requires sacrifice. Ask a mom. Ask a dad. It's inescapable. If Jesus went to a tomb so that you could walk out of one, then number three, take the limits off your allegiance to him. If he did that for you, you owe him everything. Everything. You owe him everything once for creating you in the first place. You owe him everything a second time for buying you back from all of the sin and death that you were trapped in. Number four, if Jesus went into a tomb so that you can walk out of one, then don't let the fear of death control you. A lot of times we'll say something like this, oh, before I die, I want to go see the Grand Canyon, right? And those are innocent little statements, and I'm not saying don't go see the Grand Canyon, okay? But what I'm, what I'm saying is get behind that statement. At least a little bit, there's, there's this idea that if I don't see the Grand Canyon, I will miss out on something. I will miss out on some life that I could have had. You know what I am the resurrection and the life means? It means that you will miss out on nothing that this life offers because there is infinitely more life in God. There are infinite Grand Canyons in God. Have you lost a family member here? There are infinite family members in God. Have you lost love here on the earth? There's infinite love relationships in God. You will miss out on nothing because of death in this life. Why? Because God is the resurrection and the life. I want to end with this poem. Um, It's a dialogue between death and Christian. And death says this, these arms shall crush thee. And Christian says this, spare not death, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before, thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. Do you know the resurrection and the life today? If you do, you'll be able to say to death, do your worst to me. It doesn't matter. All you're going to do is make me better because I have a friend who turns graves into gardens.